Hey, I'm Rowena, and I'm not quite a doctor. I'm Ray, and I'm not quite a lawyer. And I'm Raged, and I'm not quite a politician. And you're listening to the Not Quite Professionals podcast. Everybody, and welcome to the second episode of our NQP Spotlights little mini series. We are so excited to be having you guys here today. And I am really excited and looking forward to hearing what Raged has uh, prepared for us for her little political segment. Um, obviously, before we get into that, we're going to do our sort of housekeeping item of checking in on what everyone's drinking. Uh, I can go first. I have sort of my sort of a new thing for me, sort of trying out something new today. I have some ice cold water, but you guys wow. are expecting that <laughs> every time. <laughs> Uh, like we, it, it's not an NQP episode if it's not either me or Roeda trying to catfish the fact that we're right. not drinking something other than water. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I and in true fashion, aligning with that, um, I don't have water. Actually, I do. So nice. Yeah, okay. Nice. Stay yeah. consistent. I, I have a little something. I don't know if you heard of it. It's called water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was. I was like, should I say it in a different language this time? I don't oh, know. Oh yeah. H two O. Anyone? Yeah. H two O. Two hydrogen, one oxygen. Okay, that's the. Okay. That's chemistry. the. That's the extent to my chemistry knowledge. Um, it's a nice. sad. It's a sad week in the LRAB household. We ran out of bubbly, so. <gasps> no. <laughs> The sponsorship, I, sponsorship presented so i yes unfortunately uh bubbly never reached out to me so uh bubbly you saw <laughs> they games. never reached out so you stopped drinking their no, product um so i am staying consistent with both of you and i also have some ice cold water for today's episode nice. um yeah so that's what we're doing yeah we're we really got to mix it up because it's just it's just like a body of water across the it's like a stream between the <laughs> Like That's, we, <laughs> you know, it's really funny you say that because this episode is going to take us overseas anyways. Ooh. Wow. Okay. Okay. Great that segue. was not intentional. <laughs> that was, not, I just, I had to do it. Clean. Okay. <laughs> so um, I was racking my brain about the types of, or what kind of topic I wanted to talk about today. And uh, we had a really good episode last uh, two weeks ago uh from ray about constitutional law and mandatory masks so if you haven't heard that go listen now stop pause go listen to it or listen to it after whatever you choose but that one's a really good episode but i decided to uh take the political sphere into a different hemisphere um is it a different is europe and africa yeah okay well, um, aren't you the expert? Aren't you the one leading? I don't know. Okay, so let's. Hemisphere. I'm just. So I'm just Europe's trying to put in the, in the. I'm just trying to put in the. Just trying to the Western Hemisphere of the right. world. That's okay, so um, I do want to acknowledge one thing before we start politically, and I wouldn't be, you know, who I am without it. But uh, the United States just elected their first female Black South Asian woman as Vice President of the United States, and that is a win. And she will not be the last. So mark my words, we will see more. And I'm very excited for our future. Yeah. Represent. Okay. With that being said, so now let's get into the topic. So as you both know, and our viewers or listeners uh, know too, I got my undergrad in international relations. So I have a soft spot for everything IR. And um, today I'm basically going to give you guys a scenario and we're going to work through it as 
IR majors in a way. Um, like it's going to be a suddenly little... very nervous. <laughs> yeah. So put your thinking caps on because we oh, no. are going to have a lot of fun. Oh uh, God. I hope there isn't an exam at the end. Yeah. No, I promise we don't, this is not going to be like last time. We don't have any <laughs> quizzes, no sort of things. There is no right or wrong answer. Um, and I will want to kind of clarify before we start that this is all hypothetical. Um, these are, this is a scenario made up and it's not real. Some aspects of the scenario obviously exist in our world, but any resemblance to persons yeah. real or, or dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah all that, go. all that pre-movie stuff, um, sure. all that kind of stuff. Okay. So before I give you the scenarios, we're just going to go over two, two key points. The first key point being what a climate refugee is. So a climate refugee is a person who's been forced to leave their home as a result of the effects of climate change on their environment. Okay. And the European Union Okay, so the European Union is a political and economic body representing 27 European countries, such as Italy and Greece. Mm -hmm. That's important. They border the Mediterranean. Okay. Keep that in mind. Um, so this week, I just want us to take a time traveling machine and we're going to go to the future. Uh, and this, this is, so before I present the scenario to you, you both are going to be essentially acting as high, the high representatives of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. So those are the people okay. in the EU that make decisions that have to deal with foreign affairs and national security um, with all members, really. Got it. Hey, so I, I lied on my resume. All right, let's go. <laughs> Essentially, you represent all of the European Union. Okay, so the scenario is as follows. It is the year 2060 and climate change has created the biggest refugee crisis the world has ever seen. The reduced rainfall and increased evaporation to the dry regions such as Sub-Saharan and Southern Africa has created a water scarcity crisis in the region. Approximately 10 to 20 million people are affected in Africa and are forced out of their homes to migrate elsewhere. Climate refugees are forced to cross the Mediterranean and flee to Europe. Climate refugees have now become a matter of national security in addition to the already existing water shortage crisis. Okay. So first, I just kind of want to hear your thoughts about the scenario. Should climate refugees be accepted in Europe? Is there somewhere else they could go? What are the initial thoughts going through your heads? Um, well, that's a, I mean, it sounds like fiction right now, but that sounds actually pretty probable to what might happen in the future which is you know a pretty scary thought um in my mind though the first thing that comes to mind is what the state of european countries are as well in this year in 2060 um uh like before any kind of consideration of taking on someone else we like i'm curious if i could inquire or probe you a little bit about the state of the eu both both not just in this physical terrain but also politically like how strong all the ties are between the 27 nations if there still are 27 nations at this point in history so um that's there that's were 26 the more brexits after that <laughs> there was grexit then iterexit <laughs> then lexit Okay. So that's that's the first thing I would think of, yeah. Okay, I, I will say to that, just before uh, Ryder gives her initial scenario so that she doesn't bombard me with the same inquiries, 
is uh, essentially the political climate of the European Union exists the same. Brexit is goes down in history as the only Britain goes down the, the only, only ever person that ever left. leaving yeah. the European Union. So the political politically the climate is uh, similar and physically. So the EU, EU right now represents 447 million citizens, basically. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. kind of it's 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 basically consistent with that with the grow of population, obviously, but okay. it's it's not very changing. Got it. Okay, so, bro. What are your initial thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, all I could think was like this sounds kind of familiar to what we know today in terms of like African migrants, African refugees crossing the Mediterranean Sea, going to Italy, going to Greece. Um, So I was thinking like, okay, this is something that I don't think would be, this wouldn't be the first time that us, like if we were these representatives, this wouldn't be the first time that we're dealing with this exact problem. Um, Yeah, and I'm also totally interested in sort of how we've been affected. Like, um, I know you said, you know, the EU is sort of in the same political uh, state but how are we affected in terms of climate change because like you said like is there anywhere else that they could go uh sort of physically no <laughs> in terms of unless you sent them to like Asian countries or something but uh, it's not like they could you know make their way to North America right? right from from that distance unless they got you know unless they flew or whatever yeah, yeah. and those are obviously great observations and like it's true that yeah, this is currently happening in some scenarios and situations and in this in this specific scenario we're seeing a huge amount of 10 to 20 million people which is Mm -hmm. obviously a lot for um it's a lot for anyone to handle and be able to mitigate that solution but if i threw in just kind of another piece to the uh to the scenario and i told you so now if i tell you that bordering countries of the mediterranean of Africa, so such as Libya, Tunisia, and Egypt, they have publicly called on the European Union to take on the refugees because they have more space and more money. Will Mm -hmm. you take them? Or what are your other solutions to this situation? So now you've been publicly asked to take these refugees because you are the most capable. Is it your obligation? Well, since in this scenario we are the most capable then it the the matter is like if not us then who right um and assuming we have the resources to handle this kind of influx of people then i think we should we shouldn't obviously forget about the interests of europeans since we're the representatives for that but like i know this is oversimplifying it but it's like well if the cost benefit analysis reveals that we can handle it without too much detriment, given the severity of the situation, then, and we've been specifically now called upon by these neighboring countries, it would, it, to say no would require some kind of, I guess, really not creative, probably more cruel answer back because uh, these people are probably suffering and displaced and um, need some kind of uh, place. And I think the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the very first thing or one of the very first things is like shelter, a place to be. Um, So as signatory nations on any kind of UN agreement, stuff like that, uh, the EU 
should be in compliance with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I agree, but I'm wondering like, maybe Rick Ed, you can speak to this as like somebody that's studied this, this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, but like how uh, important is it that people, and I'm gonna sound like a horrible person, but how important is it that people comply with the treaties that they've signed regarding like refugees and stuff? Like, for example, like Europe today, you know, they do accept quite a lot of refugees. Um, but I know that they want to sort of scale back on those kinds of efforts because it's mm-hmm. burdening their economy and it's burdening their population. Um, like, are they able to just be like, yeah, we don't want you anymore with like relatively little repercussions beyond sort of like scolding from the international community or? And scolding is as like funny as it kind of may seem to us here of you know someone calling out someone else but that's actually the I would say like the biggest issue that international actors face when it comes to these types of situations the international community is not um, obligated to comply in these sorts of instances and it this this kind of brings the big issue that I wanted to talk about today. Um, and it's really the big IR question that a lot of people ask. And, you know, when you're studying IR, it's always around, you know, whose obligation is it and whose responsibility is it? And as both of you obviously mentioned, the, the right thing to do is to take them in. If you have the resources and the capabilities, but that's also goes to say that there is, the option of not taking them in and being fully um, independent, you know? So it's basically international treaties and even if they're ratified, um, they're not, uh, they're not legally binding. So you don't have to, and that's the issue with IR is that you don't have to comply even if you've signed a treaty. And a lot of times you can sign it as a narrative or an optic, a political optic as we call it. Um, and it doesn't really solve any issues because you, it, depending on the situation, you can just say no. So the European Union can say, no, we don't want it. We're going to close our borders. And you know, people migrating are going to essentially die at sea, which is what we're seeing today Um, and I guess this brings up the question and it's basically subjective as we've talked about this point but do international institutions have an obligation or duty to mitigate these types of situations so apart from the EU now we're talking fully just on an IR spectrum do international institutions like the UN you know the World Bank the IMF Mm-hmm. The, United Na- the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, those types of institutions, do they have an obligation or duty to mitigate issues like this? Um, I mean, from, from like a moral perspective, the answer is obvious, but like they would have a duty. But I'm trying to think of it from a legal dimension. And my knowledge of uh, international law is not that robust, um, but... From what I understand, these bodies like the UN and like the World Bank, while they do tremendous work, they are, you know, they're they're kind of pseudo powers in in a respect of mm-hmm. they they don't have full authorities or like 
authority that is so encapsulating that if they issue an order that countries shake in their boots or are so comply like so so compelled to follow it so well whether the efficacy of the duty is is one thing but the the existence of the duty i'm not entirely sure i would i would like to think that these um bodies like the un and the world bank operate on some kind of mandate that does require them to intervene in instances like this um whether they owe a duty to these nations is beyond the scope of my knowledge i would think that there is a practical one but at the same time when i think about it practically what triggering event would enable these bodies to get involved is like so vague and broad to me that I'm, I'm like, I can't really rectify it. I want to, I'm going to throw the hot potato to Rowena now because I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> you just sort of top circles and now I'm just like, oh, what do I say? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess like, I don't know, obligation is sort of a strong word because like really is, <laughs> is anyone obligated to do anything, right? Like it's sort of philosophical in that sense, but at the same time, like, by by nature of like what these organizations are i feel like they at least have quote unquote an obligation like obligation in the sense no no one can force them but obligation in sort of a, a virtuous or like a symbolic sense um to at the very least attempt to um address these issues in some to some extent just because like why else do they exist if not for mm-hmm. these exact situations, like mm-hmm. no offense, UN, but like if you're not figuring out these frigging climate refugee crises, what are you doing? Like why why do you exist? Why are you supported by you know so much funding from the international community? If at the very least you don't deal with these exact issues that plague the international community, not to say like they should be doing pouring 100% into every single issue. Like I understand there's a limit of resources, but at the end of the day, like these organizations exist for a reason and if they can't commit to you know some of the work that is required by them like maybe we should kind of rethink the way they're structured yeah can i can i before we continue can i ask a question to to you regard sure um do fiduciary duties exist in international relations is that even a concept on the international scale or is that only a domestic concept and can i get a definition for what that is (laughs) so a fiduciary duty is a duty someone owes to someone else and they the duty is that the they must act in the other person's best interest so the fiduciary say me to reged if i was reged's fiduciary i have a duty to act in reged's best interest okay Okay. like a like a doctor has that to a patient a lawyer has that to a client i'm wondering if that exists on the ir level if I want to say um, if it does exist, then it exists on paper and a very, mm. I would say, practical lens. It doesn't exist. Um, it's very selective too. Like I would say, just if there is a bilateral agreement between two countries, obviously you, whether formal, like unofficially or officially, you'll look to, you know, the best interests in order to make the bilateral relationship um, kind of exist or flourish. But officially, I would say, unfortunately, the way the international world works is 
based on a lot of independence, international, like mm-hmm. independent sovereignty. And that's not right. to say, and it's not to say that, you know, we don't work together and that there isn't some type of cohesiveness, but, you know, to sugarcoat it and say that we all work together and we, you know, fix issues, I think would be completely false and gives a, you know, a false narrative to what really exists. Um, but the truth is that at the end of the day, just as human nature is inherently selfish, when it comes to, you know, protecting, if you are a leader of a country, it's protecting your own country's best interests more than protecting yeah. another country's best interest. And that's how I see it. If you talk to another IR major, they might see it a completely different way, which just goes to keep showing you that not only is this very subjective, but it's very selective. And I want to kind of bring it back to what Ray was talking about intervention and intervention is a whole other, you know, type of topic that we could do a whole episode about, but just briefly, it's interesting because there's some sort of selectiveness when it comes to the international community deciding on what they want to interfere with. If it's, Mm -hmm. they'll be very easy to look the other way. So like, for example, the NATO intervention in Libya turned out to be a very, um Hmm. bad horrible thing that happened whereas you know the U.S. and NATO were saying this is this is going to benefit this is going to work and it really didn't work and it showcased you know they decided to intervene in this situation for specific reasons Um, and then there was multiple other issues going on in different parts of the world where they didn't intervene so it really goes to show it depends on your political agenda um you know who you who you have depends on who i can get some black market oil from exactly (laughs) right and that's huge too and you know it's it it pains me to talk about it in this way because obviously i want to be a politician and i don't i don't want to paint a negative picture but at the end of the day it it is it is negative in some situations and yeah unfortunately there is no international obligation so as high representatives of the EU in this scenario, you both have the absolute right to decline these 20 million people that are displaced as, as morally wrong as it is. But why would I add that many more people? Right. Right. Yeah. I think if you're making decisions on behalf of you know, 440 million citizens, European citizens, or whatever we said earlier, um, it's, it can't be moral. uh, It can't be at least like a moral lens that we use. I think it has to become like sort of pragmatic or utilitarian at the end of the day, which sucks, but um, I guess like maximizing the benefit for those 440 million is, is our priority as their representatives. Right. Um, so if it didn't make sense to accept the refugees, I definitely would do that. Yeah. And I mean, I've known a little bit about this fact that like there's no binding element in IR, but it always makes me wonder like, then what hope is there to ever collaborate or to produce these, produce results and help people like? mutual benefit i mean yeah that's that's true but like if there's no binding element i know that the the sovereignty of nations is like paramount and key but Mm. like 
do we not then run into this issue just like what we're getting illustrated where like you could turn away these people i mean i guess i can see why people would defend this and i i i understand why but it's like it's like i don't know how i don't know how like optimism is festered in a system where like you it's every man for themselves pretty much mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and it it's it's sad because i feel i feel like now we've gotten into such a and i, I obviously didn't want this to be negative and be upsetting um but it is obviously <laughs> it's 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 what our world has come to and something i want to go back to too is the other side of this is climate change and that's something that you know we haven't talked about on this podcast yet and um obviously it's an impeding issue that will only get worse and what's even more interesting is that there actually isn't technically some there like climate refugee doesn't technically exist as a definition or in international law. So the fact that this is almost as if the world is learning as we go is, I believe, to be um, concerning in some certain ways, just because this creates a new territory for national security and how the international community will ultimately act. But do you think climate change is going to have such effects? in terms of kind of what I just talked about. For a second, I thought you were going to say, do you think climate change is real? And I was like, I hope to <laughs> God we don't have to ask these questions. No. Yes, yes it is I real. Think we're all, yeah, we're all on the same page about that. Yeah, yeah. please. Um, do, yeah, yeah, I do think that these effects are going to manifest, especially if we continue on the trajectory that we have been on since, you know, the Industrial Revolution. Um, it's sort of scary, like when I see, you know, I'll watch, you know, a David Attenborough uh, documentary once in a while, and he did one recently talking about like his his life and like the documentaries he did, and um, he talked a bit about climate change in that, and it made me just very sad because I was like, damn, like we don't have that much time left. <laughs> it's very scary, and and it feels sort of. Um, it, it makes me feel sort of powerless because beyond just sort of the destruction of the earth and the death of, you know, hundreds of species and all of that, just thinking about these different climate crises that are going to significantly affect our population. Like I know places like, you know, um, uh, sort of o ocean side uh, or like shore, lake shore side places, like, uh, what do you call it? Like Miami and like Hawaii and stuff. A lot of those places are going to have regions that are completely flooded that people are going to need to mm. um, get away from and and thinking about the escalation of different like fire forest fires like how this past summer we had really bad fires in California earlier this year there were really bad fires in Australia um, and that kind of stuff is only going to get worse and that devastation is only going to increase so like that kind of like it really, really scares me. And, and I like this example that you've brought up where is, I think really topical and really accurate as to what it would look like. Maybe not even in 2060, maybe even sooner than that, honestly. Yeah, I, I think you've painted a very realistic picture for us, Raget. And I also like, I, I, I think though, however, to maybe turn this a little, I think that the discussion around climate change has changed in the past few years 
um, compared to the past because now we see people very, very focused on this. Like the Green New Deal was a, a hot oh, yeah. in the States. Yep. Um, Greta Thun- Thunberg has, you know, made headlines over what she was saying. Um, I think that there has is now a greater focus on it because of a, especially when I was reading through the Green New Deal, I, I had a random spur of interest in that, like, I don't know, like three weeks ago or something. And I was like, let me do some more. Um, it was actually really cool how it presented, how it kind of reshaped the uh, political discussion around climate change, at least in the proposal. It was like, um, from an economic perspective, they actually broke it down. And I, that to me was actually clever because they put it in a ballpark. It kind of dumbed it down, so to speak, so that people- yeah incredibly profit driven can see it very clearly illustrated um and i found that to be very effective um but yeah and so it's like with with minds like her and you know now that we have a president-elect who i who at least acknowledges the existence of climate change um we i think that like the conversation is shifting and i think that there will be ready action um at least going forward from now um because this is such a focus but at the same time it's also a little bit disheartening to be like we have to rely so heavily on these elected officials not to say that like not to say that like relying on elected officials is a bad thing it's more like the stars have to align in a certain way in order for these to be heard it's not a universally adopted um concern or urgent concern for a lot of people so that is concerning, but I think should should the should this discourse continue and be elevated and be increased, which I think the trend is revealing that. Um, I think the results could be a little bit better, but you know it's it, it's all it's all a matter of waiting the game to play out and seeing how the world responds to it. Yeah, yeah. that. But the only problem with that is how long is that going to take? We don't have that mm-hmm. much time left. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's, That's true. We, You're like, you, we're definitely going in that direction, but who knows if, yeah. if that takes 10 years, like how much more damage is going to be done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're That's running you're you're running on two different time clocks. You're running on the earth clock and how much time we have left in, you know, climate change time, but we also are running on the clock of you know, the existing political climate. You know, we've seen we've seen many wins for different political um, elections, I would say, recently. And something, I guess, that this also brings up is, I believe, and I'm not saying this as a politician, I say this, I think, as just a citizen, is that there is a hope for a newer generation that will handle politics differently. And that's not to say yeah. that our whole, all of these mandates will cease to exist and the way that international law and international actors uh, communicate and collaborate with each other will inherently, you know, shift overnight. But I think that regardless of, you know, independent sovereignty and, you know, the, there will, I think there will be more of an ethical and moral standpoint that future politicians will take because they know and they care and they take these issues a lot more seriously. But that also doesn't mean you should not be holding your politicians today accountable. And that's super important too, right? And that's something that I kind of also wanted to touch upon is making sure 
you know, just because you don't think you can do much doesn't mean you're not capable of something. And that something is holding the people in power accountable. If they're not doing something that you believe should be done and everybody else is around you saying, this is not right, then you have the power to do something. Very true. Regad, how helpful is it for me? Because, you know, this is, this is very like inspiring, but at the same time, like a lot of the time, I feel like um, the sort of climate, the issues and, and the main contributors to pollution and, you know, deforestation and all of those things that significantly affect climate change are like massive, massive mm-hmm. conglomerate corporations, right? Yeah. How do I, as a citizen, beyond emailing my MP, like, have an impact on, on them? Because I know, like, I guess, like, the only people that can really police those organizations are sort of governing bodies, like, you know, the government of Canada or whatever. But at the mm-hmm. same time, they don't do that because it is in our economic interest that we keep them happy. <laughs> How yeah. do we sort of mitigate the two? There is... I think there's multiple right answers to this question and a lot of people feel this way and I'm and to be honest I felt this way for a very long time too and I guess what changed for me I mean what's interesting is I did my undergraduate collaborative thesis with my graduating class about um about uh about climate change and the Canadian impact and how we can do some different things in order to you know mitigate our losses in the future but the biggest thing is that yeah governments are more capable of taking action that you know you might be able to see you know something substantive and it's as I know everyone says writing to your MP and like it's getting a little more you know like okay is that all you like what's that going to do is that all I'm supposed to do but at the end of the day if if you are pushing for this and multiple other people are pushing for this like they have no choice but to listen and as like the way you grow momentum is the only way you'll be able to get somebody to listen and at this point we have to make them listen but then on the other side of it I really want to point out that there are so many young people in entrepreneur roles that are making such differences in the way that we see climate change, the way that we understand climate change, but also in the way that we function in our daily lives. Going plastic free, like the use of the way people package their items. And even though this seems so small and, you know, as if it's making a difference, but I think there's a new generation coming in that, you know, are taking climate change into consideration when they're creating their businesses, when they are, you know, coming into the world of economics. So hopefully we'll be able to see whether whether you're part of the gang that tries to create something or you're part of the gang that tries to force governments to listen, like whatever you do, it will have an impact. You may not see it now, but I promise, I think one day you will. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I'm writing up an email. I'm writing up an email template as we speak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really, that was really nice at the end, sort of hopeful message, but I, I really hope that that's true and that we sort of move towards that bright future. Cause I don't want 26, 
happy to to look like how it did at the beginning of this podcast. Well, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm 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 really happy about the way you guys kind of took this. And I hope everyone listening was able to kind of also play along in a sense and understand and you know take their own stab at this. And I didn't want it to be negative, which is why I tried to end on a positive note <laughs> love that <laughs> but it's it's important to be optimistic in these types of situations even though you know everyone around you is telling you you just need to be a realist but sometimes the world needs a little optimism and you know what it doesn't hurt so yeah why not couldn't agree more yeah <laughs> do you guys have uh this this was really fun for me so thank you and uh that was a lot exciting of- i i you know what mm-hmm. it's very refreshing i'll say the past couple of weeks like the only discourse has been the u.s election so it's actually really nice to hear about and or and or covid so the it's really nice to hear about something that was that's still you know a big problem but um it's sort of different politically and um is a bit of more on, on a grander scale um, so thank you. Like I, I really appreciate this choice of topic. Actually, oh, I'm glad. Yeah. yeah, this is a nice palate cleanser from the study, studying the electoral <laughs> electoral college system. To I bet uh, mo- every Canadian knows the electoral college. Yep. Now, now I, I, I have a, I have a map in my brain of that has the numbers on it of each state. <laughs> So, yeah, this was this was much needed, I think, since it's been such a congestion of the same topics. So thank you. I'm glad. No, that that was that was the goal at the end. And I hope everyone listening um, enjoyed this episode and, you know, be prepared because our next spotlight series is going to be taken over by Raida. And, you know, she and her medical expertise is going to whip us something good. So with that being said, uh, you know what you need to do if you want to get in touch with us. Send us an email at nqp.podcast at gmail.com or just send us a DM at NQP Podcast. If you want to see someone on the podcast, if you want to, uh, if there's a specific topic you want to hear about, let us know. We're really open uh, to these conversations. So thank you for listening and thank you guys for being a part of this with me. Um, and anytime (laughs) and it is with that that we say goodbye from the NQP gang this week and we shall see you next time thanks everyone Bye. bye bye